The General Planning Podcast takes you backstage and explores the world of planning and strategy development. We will get you into the minds of successful leaders and executives in our government and industry and hear firsthand how they made some of America's most historic decisions. I'm your host, Mark Lavin, the Director of Strategy, Plans, and Policy at Army North. And I'm here with Seth Barham, the Public Affairs Operations Chief. Join us as we learn about planning and strategy from our nation's best. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is on planning that supports decision-making at the speed of change. As planning teams align ends, ways, means, risk into a strategy, the question is how do these plans then enable or complement decision-making that can ebb and flow at the tempo that is dictated by the changing environment? We have a great episode lined up today with General Retired Vince Brooks as our guest, but also back in the booth from our first episode co-hosting today with Seth and I, is our commander, Lieutenant General John Evans. Hey, sir, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back with the team. I'm excited about what we're doing with the podcast, and it's a real treat to be here with one of my old bosses and be able to talk about the planning. So we got General Brooks dialed on. Sir, how are you doing today? Doing great. Good to be with you. So for our audience, I wanted to just give a quick overview of your bio. Born in Anchorage, Alaska, General Brooks grew up in an Army family. He graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1980 with the distinction of being appointed Cadet Brigade Commander, or First Captain. Commissioned an infantry officer, General Brooks began his career in the 82nd Airborne Division and went on to command operational units at every level with deployments to Kosovo, Germany, South Korea, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He served as Deputy Commanding General of the 1st Cavalry Division in Baghdad and later commanded the 1st Infantry Division, as well as commanding at U.S. Army Central. In 2013, he took command at U.S. Army Pacific, and in 2016, U.S. Forces Korea, until he retired in 2019. Hey, Mark, thanks for reviewing that. Let me just jump on a little bit if I can. I don't want to embarrass General Brooks, but I had the privilege of serving with his brother in the 82nd, so long before I knew uh, General Vince Brooks, I knew uh, General Leo Brooks. Uh, back when I was in the 504th and uh, as a young captain, aviator, uh, or actually a lieutenant, as an L&O there, and uh, I think Leo was over in 2504, maybe 3504, I forget. But anyway, uh, that was my first exposure to the amazing Brooks family and then had the real privilege of serving with him in Korea. And, sir, I think as we get into the conversation, we'd love to hear your perspectives because uniquely, I think, uh, you've had the opportunity to command twice at the regional ASC level, which is, I think, a rarity in our Army. No, you're absolutely right, John. And it was first of the 504, so we love Red Devils here. That happened to be the same battalion I was in as a as a lieutenant. And uh, it was interesting to to share flashes and ovals with my brother. And he kind of went in there and stayed there forever as a S3, as executive officer of the 1st Battalion, then on to become the uh, commander of the 504th, as well as commander of 1st Battalion. So he, he, he spent quite a bit of time in the 82nd there. So I, I never came back and just stayed out of his way and left it to him. But I'm glad you got to experience both of the Brooks brothers and we don't make suits. <laughs> he would remind me when I got there late with an air assault. And he would probably scold me for accusing him of being a uh, blue devil or a white devil, red devils all over. There you go. That's right. So, sir, so today's podcast, we talk about planning. And as planning is really just a theory something that ideally synchronizes efforts and time and space to achieve a desired effect. And sometimes planners really get into this habit of thinking that they're creating something that's static, when in fact plans need to be able to accommodate you know, changing dynamics of an operational environment. And you've spent time at all levels of the Department of Defense. And so from your perspective or from your experience, you know, have you seen or when that's been done well or when that hasn't been necessarily done you know, quite so well, thinking back with hindsight? What's interesting, I, certainly as I came out of SAMS, I had a, a, a perspective of planning and got to apply some of that as a division plans officer at 1st Cavalry Division as a young major. And then on beyond there, it really showed its benefit later in time. Uh, interestingly enough, not that first assignment that everyone tends to focus on as they come out of a, a course like SAMS, but it's, it's really the long-term effects of understanding campaigning that was even more significant for me. But I would tell you that I think what I learned over the years of 
either being a planner or being involved in planning at multiple levels and with the interagency and with uh, other governments around the world is planning is really important. It's an important discipline to have. It's something that is part and parcel of the military culture, especially the US military culture, but that doesn't always fit depending on what environment you're actually operating in. So the approach to planning has to be adapted to the environment within which you are making plans. Uh, for example, we've got a structured military decision-making process and everybody learns that from very early in their careers and it serves us very well, especially in tactical military units, but that does not work in the interagency. And so the approach to planning must be adapted. The essence of planning, which is conceptualizing, visualizing, putting together a series of actions that can lead to potentially to a set of outcomes and then being agile enough to respond from the outcomes to the next opportunity. That to me is the essence of planning at all levels. And it's common to the tactical level, it's tact at the operational level, at the interagency and in international environments all as well. But you know, this is very interesting because I, I know sometimes we get so hung up on planning and plans that we feel anchored to them, as you alluded to. I remember having a conversation with uh, Secretary Mattis when he was the Secretary of Defense. He came over to Korea, and we weren't sure if we were going to be having to break glass over there or not. It was a close-run thing, and we had to make sure we were ready, but also very steady in how we were approaching the deterrent and compelling efforts that were undertaken over there. And I remember telling him, hey, I'm not likely to use that war plan that's been approved. I'm just not, I'm not going to fight that way. And so this idea of plans tends to be connected to resourcing more than anything else. The more senior you get, the more it's about resourcing and less about action. And then action has to be actually undertaken relative to the environment as it is at a given point in time. So that may have wandered around a little bit, but come back at me here. No, hey, sir, it's John. That's great. And there's a couple of threads I'd like to pull there. Number one, you just acknowledge what you did in Korea. I was only a year removed from being out of there when things really began to get hot. And a lot of our audience may not realize that Americans tend to like to think about duking it out and how we're going to play the big game. But the, the first mission always in Korea is to de-escalate if possible. And, and you did a fabulous job working there with the chairman of the ROC forces uh, and other military and civilian leaders to do just that. that. That was interesting to watch from my perch as I moved on from Korea. But you talked about two things that I thought were, were interesting just now. You talked about the, the the nuances, I think, of planning with the interagency. We do an awful lot of that here at uh, Army North, Fifth Army. We are principally responsible, in addition to what we do for Homeland Defense, in providing defense support to civil authorities for the NORTHCOM commander. And that's a big team, and very few of those folks are actually military. It's mostly interagency team. They come with different backgrounds, different cultures, and different looks. So we do have to open our aperture from a planning standpoint on that. And then you also talked about campaigning, which I think is incredibly timely, because right now as we take a look at who our competitors are out there, and we take a look at our governing strategic documents, we really are working hard on how do we campaign ultimately to convince the people out there that might consider doing us and our partners and allies harms, that's a bad idea. Deterrence and integrated deterrence. So pick one of those, pull a little bit on that, push back a little bit. I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of that, particularly in light of your Korea experience. No, thanks, John. I, I find particularly in the interagency that there's often a desire frequently introduced by the Department of Defense to put discipline and rigor into the interagency planning process. And that to me is always a mistake. I mean, there's goodness in having some discipline and some rigor. So I, I don't want to misstate here, but overstructuring the planning process is something that suits the military very nicely, where we try to analyze a, a variety of alternatives, look at the, the various risks and come up with as we call them in the military, courses of action. And here's what we're going to do. Let's move out violently. You know, it doesn't have to be a perfect plan. It just needs to be well executed. Everybody needs to understand it. And let's get, get going and develop the situation from there. But we seek to, in, in military planning, we seek to eliminate 
ambiguities and unanswered questions. Whereas in the civilian arena, civilian policy arena especially, the desire is to wait until the last moment needed before an actual decision is made. You can make alternatives before that and, and should. And the NRAC does very well at, at generating options, but we're not trying to drive to a course of action. It's matter of it's a matter of weighing alternatives, keeping the greatest amount of flexibility for the president principally, but other department level principals who may have lead at a given point in time so that they can react to the circumstances as they are. And there are other dynamics that come into play there. I, I remember back, I was a late Lieutenant Colonel, soon to be Colonel, doing a war college fellowship at the Harvard Kennedy School. And my research topic was civil military relations in the national security decision-making process. And I will admit to having walked in with being loaded with theory and, and concept and read plenty of things uh, from the people who are well known out there. And it didn't match what I actually ended up hearing as I talked to the practitioners themselves about the nature of how things work at the national strategic level when it comes to formulating policy in, in the national security arena. We had one conversation with Ambassador Bob Gelbart, who was at uh, the State Department at the time as a special representative of the president. And when we walked in, he says, is this about Kosovo? I said, no, Mr. Secretary, it's not about Kosovo. So what's it about? We're just want to, we want to talk about civil military relations and decision-making processes writ large. And we ultimately got into a discussion about what had recently been produced by the White House called Presidential Decision Directive Number 56, PDD 56. And it was the manifestation of internal churn within the national security arena on how to manage complex contingencies. Now, how are we going to do this work together? And the military, particularly post-Somalia, was going, hey, you got, we, we've got to have some structure to this. Otherwise, we're going to waste lives and dollars unnecessarily and not even know where we're going or what, what our purpose is. So let's talk about how we're going to do this. And he says, that really doesn't matter, which shocked me. It doesn't matter what the president signs. It, it's really going to be a function of how the players in the arena end up going about it, even if you have it codified in a document like a presidential decision directive. That shocked me. Uh, but I found it to be true in the latter portion of my career as I went from colonel to four-star general and found myself operating in that world more and more, you have to bring an agility in how you think. You must bring a technical competence in your particular aspect of the planning for the interagency, for example, the use of the military instrument. And you must bring an openness then to other alternatives. It may not be ones you would routinely have considered or that have you in, in the primary position, which is often the way uh, our, our defense colleagues feel. We, we ought to be in the middle of this. If you're gonna put us in the middle of it, step aside, provide us the support, let's get it done. And that really isn't the way it needs to be. I, I think all those things, that's the thread I'm gonna pull first is how to plan in the interagency is more a function of mental agility and competence than it is about coming in with a solid plan and good doctrine and tactics. Yes, sir. It, that. That's great, and it's interesting you should say that because having had the opportunity to be a federal executive fellow at the Brookings Institution, I found the same thing, right? We all mm -hmm. go back in the War College and we study um, the National Security Act of 1948 and the crafting of the National Security Council, and you come in with kind of your set views on what it's going to look like, right? How, how do we do grand strategy and how do we make decisions at the, at the executive level when, in fact, it, it does change, frankly, from administration to administration based on the druthers of the president, how the secretary and the cabinet want to feed information, how the National Security Council is structured. And that's hard for a for a concrete military thinker to wrap their mind around. Always appreciated my opportunity to be on the other side of the river at Brookings on Massachusetts mm -hmm. Avenue and watch some of this as a young or as a senior colonel, as it were, when I was there. But it's can you can you weave now into a little something? Because again, I really want to hear about campaigning because I've heard you talk about it before. And I think it would benefit our listeners to hear how you approach that process and certainly how you had to do that in several jobs, but to specifically there in Korea when things were really getting to a fever pitch. Yeah, sure, John. This is another one that 
campaigning is a an art form and it applies more and more as you become increasingly senior in headquarters that are more senior so sometimes we develop campaign plans down inside of practical units but that tends to be a series of actions leading to some outcome like a, a road to war campaign plan where you're in preparation for deployment and you have certain steps that you need to go through certain things you want to get done in a certain period so that they can be preparatory for something that follows uh, you have things you have to do with families you've got things you have to do with equipment things you have to do with the installation and community and things you have to do with obviously the those who are going to conduct the deployed operation itself and so we may arrange things in sequence and in purpose and to that sense, that is actually campaigning. But the real essence of it comes at the operational level of war, where you are arranging battles, actions. It could be in competition. It could be a series of exercises that are deliberately related to one another. It could be a series of response options that are related to each other. And certainly in wartime, it can be a series of combat actions and battles that are related in purpose and in time to achieve certain outcomes that then lead into something else, ultimately uh, giving you an arrival at your destination of what end conditions you were seeking. Now, that end could be the end of a campaign. It could be the end of a conflict. More often than not, it tends to be the end of a campaign. You've reached what it is you intended to do. Now you have a new set of circumstances. And what comes thereafter? What's the sequel campaign? So this idea of constantly thinking about actions relative to time and purpose is the art of campaigning. At the levels that I served at in the latter part of my career, U.S. Army Central, U.S. Army Pacific, and U.S. Forces Korea, uh, with its uh, two additional hats of the multinational and the binational hats, uh, required me to think that way. As a commander, I had to be on the horizon and not drawn into the here and now. I had tactical commanders to be in the here and now. And I, while I needed to understand what was happening in the here and now, and that comes with battlefield circulation and commanders conferences and talking to sergeants major, I mean, there are things that you do to maintain awareness, but my real value is not in the here and now, except maybe to reallocate resources. It's really to be on the horizon, given the here and now, and where we want to be, what is the path that takes me from where I am to where I want to be? What, is it, what does it take? What are the alternatives for that? How can I generate options up to my boss and bosses? How do I cause something to move from the military sphere into the diplomatic sphere or into the economic sphere? And who are the players on that? What authorities do I have to be able to engage that way? Should I be talking to the Secretary of State as a field commander? My practice was, if the Secretary of State happens to come agree, you're absolutely right, I'm going to speak to the Secretary <laughs> of State. And I'm going to try to get a very clear understanding of what the Secretary is thinking so that I can get the bigger picture of where the government is going. Because you don't always get to have a conversation with the Commander-in-Chief. All right, so it's those who are dealing with the Commander-in-Chief, those who are executing for the Commander-in-Chief, give you the feeling of the direction, the purpose, the limitations, the expectations. And those then have to get woven back into what it is we do as military players. Let me finish this point by simply saying that the real campaigning art form over there was arranging response options right. that could achieve a particular effect principally oriented on the decision-making of North Korea's leaders, and especially Kim Jong-un himself, trying to lead them to a conclusion that the military approach was not the right avenue for them to follow. Continuous escalation and potential spillovers or actual combat action between us was not what they would want to have, and that they would be much wiser to look for a diplomatic and economic set of relationships with the United States and with South Korea and with the international community than a military one. So what does that look like? So it's different levels of action that are related in time to one another. And that was particularly the case after the uh, first two ICBM launches, intercontinental ballistic missile launches 
in the summer of 2017. So when those occurred, that was a stated red line by two previous administrations of the United States and by the South Korean administrations. And we had to go into action. Now, it, action isn't, okay, let's start striking beginning tomorrow. Right. Because that's a different circumstance. But what can we do differently that restores deterrence and that signals a game change that Kim Jong-un has now taken a step too far and that they need to pull back from the posture that they're in or face grave danger. And so we started doing things like changing the direction that some of our air response options flew. Instead of east to west, we actually flew south to north. And the south to north was well beyond the, the extension of the military demarcation line. So in other words, we were flying parallel to North Korea, but in international airspace. Uh, and that was coordinated with Indo-Pacific Command because they actually controlled the assets. We, we ended up doing missile launches ourselves with counter-strike capability, putting actual ATACMs in the air and South Korean equivalents of that, the Hyunmu-2 right. missile, in real time. So if North Korea launched an ICBM, as they did in November of uh, 2017, that was the third ICBM launch. So if South Korea, excuse me, North Korea launched an intercontinental in the summer, excuse me, in the November of 2017, we put two missiles in the air as well. Yes, sir. And so it's arranging these different alternatives and putting them in sequence with one another so they build a crescendo of pressure that then opens the door for diplomatic engagement and dialogue. And that unfolded in February of 18 as the door began to unlock with North Korea. Was that a tipping point in November of 2017? I happen to believe that it was and that North Korea signaled to us and so the assessment of the environment has to include how is the enemy or the adversary reacting to what it is you do. And it's not 100% certain that they even got the messages you sent, but you have to look for an inflection point and then create the sequel actions that come from that with new measurements of risk being taken and new alternatives on what actions are, are to be taken in complementarity with the other instruments of U.S. power. Yes, sir. Uh, sir, that's a, that's a great uh, exemplar, I think, of the point you were trying to make a few minutes ago about, about the agility of the thought process and planning, how it can't be rigid, and it really has to be adapted to the situation. And the more strategic or the more the higher level you go, particularly in the military spectrum, as you're bringing other players in outside of that uh, military instrument of power, the, the more flexible you have to be. I'm interested. It's been uh, almost five years since you've retired, I believe. I think in January you'll celebrate a big five-year anniversary since since you laid down your stars. But so you, I know you've been just prolific in your work, certainly with the nonprofit world, but also in industry. And I know you've been awfully busy. Can you help our listeners understand a little bit how some of that planning acumen that you developed over the course of your career can translates pretty readily into some of the things that you do in the business world where the profit sheet really is what you're looking at, and it's uh, a much different game than, than what we play here in DOD. Yeah, certainly, John. It's, it's been interesting in retirement to have alternatives and to think about what it is I want to commit myself and my energies to. There's a lot to be done out there, and there are abundant opportunities for veterans as they come out. I mean, everybody brings something with them from the military service. And there's a lot that they can bring to bear. This is one example is you asked about planning. Uh, in things like the nonprofit world, uh, planning tends to be limited. And when you have a culture of planning, you can put into greater order the arrangement of actions to achieve specific purposes and outcomes and the allocation of resources associated therewith and actually cause the nonprofit to begin to move further and further in its effectiveness. This idea of being able to share the approach to planning to create outcomes with a nonprofit can be very effective. And I watch a lot of colleagues do that in retirement. It's not that they're walking in as a plans element or anything like that. It's that they help the nonprofit think through what it's doing, why it's doing it, how it's doing it, and what resources are being used to it, used for it, and where they're going with that. So that was one of the first places I found myself applying applying my planning experience. In the corporate world, I'm on three 
publicly traded company boards. And it comes up more in the matter of how do you understand risk and then communicate your understanding of risk to a collective body of decision makers, the board of directors, the C-suite, as it's called, the you know, executive leadership teams. And, and what is it that they might be missing in the consideration of risk? Certainly bringing an international perspective as I had from my three last commands and, and some of the other ones that were more junior to that, but especially the three last commands, which are fundamentally in the international environment, it, it, may, it may cause you to think about risks in a different way with regard to geopolitical risks, geoeconomic risks, regional risks, regional implications to domestic policy. All these kinds of things become additive to the experience. And it comes from my military experience that I bring that in. I try to make that valuable to the boards that I'm on without constantly trying to drive them into a military decision-making process. It, it's again, the agility of the mind. If, right. if I can understand risk differently, and if I can help articulate the understanding of risk, then the organization itself can appreciate risk differently. And from that, since opportunities and it's the sensing of opportunities and organizing for them that is the heart of campaigning once again and so we find companies engaging this way also they may they may make a one or two year strategic plan to try to achieve growth for example in certain areas and what does it take to achieve that is it move faster produce faster is it change the contracts that you're in? Is it change the relationships? Is it lowering costs? Is it changing the portfolio of the work? Is it changing the clientele? Is it changing the geographic regions within which you're doing work? And the answer could be all the above. And how do you arrange them relative to one another so that you can actually achieve the outcome of anticipated growth, which is never guaranteed, just like military operations are not guaranteed. So I find that there's good crossover from that to others, I do some consulting work as well and can provide advice on matters like that. And certainly many military colleagues retire and have specialized in providing such advice as consultants, organizations hire them to help them think through planning, risk, and campaigning. Hey, sir, I think I want to pull the string on you talked about the crossover in these different cultures. But then you also talk about the essence of planning when we opened up about being the, the ability to drive outcomes. And, and you said that the plans were really about resourcing. For most plans, it's about resources at the end of the day. And I think a, a big part of that is still risks. I've heard you talk about risk as well in terms of the planning, getting to risk, and then to use your words, it's about the, the, the next steps of the action, right? So when you told the secretary that you aren't using that plan off the shelf because it was about the risk that you'd already measured, the resources that had already been you know, put in place to then now go and fight if you needed to, and in terms of the campaigning aspect of it. So can you talk a little bit about across all of those, one, if you agree with that, if not, please push back, but then across all of those different, I guess, cultures, how much of the culture in those organizations is uh, part of you know, being able to do those assessments and drive those campaign goals as you put it into action? I'm a fan of understanding and appreciating culture and having empathy as a key aspect of anyone's approach, especially when you're doing something that is cross-cultural. Whole of government work is cross-cultural. International work inside of a coalition is cross-cultural working at state, federal, and local levels in the middle of a domestic crisis, as Fifth Army does so marvelously, is cross-cultural. And so if you have some understanding of the cultural differences, it could be the culture of planning, it could be the culture of execution, it could be the culture of, of decision authority. If you have an appreciation for that, then you can navigate within it and not try to dominate it in such a way that, hey, we know this works We've been doing the military for a long time. We're older than the nation itself. Why don't you just fall in and do it like us? That's likely to create more friction than it is to create harmony. And when you're working cross-culturally, you want harmony. You want to create a unity of effort and a unity of purpose, not a unity of command. 
And so, so I find that recognizing and appreciating the cultural differences creates then the understanding of the way you navigate, the way one navigates inside of that environment. Let's talk for just a, a second about what I would still term as the heart of strategy, and that is determining the ends or aims that you're after. What, what are you trying to get done? What are you after? What are you doing? And then looking at different ways to accomplish that. That's where the options come into play. Those are ways to do things that might lead you to the expected ends or uh, aims. And then looking at the means available. This is where resourcing comes in. So your plan ought to be constrained by resourcing, but not entirely. You, you sometimes need to think differently about the resources you have and putting together in different ways. And that's the heart of innovation, in my opinion. And then always being cognizant of the risks that emerge from any alternative and that, that, ex, that expectation of risk, that understanding of risk may vary from one culture to the next. And so having a conversation about risk relative to the means to be committed, for example, should we give F-16s to Ukraine or should we not? Okay. That's about means. And the means, the introduction of certain means can create a different set of risks that may be appreciated differently by Ukrainians, differently by NATO, differently by the United States, differently by the international community beyond that, different by Russia. And that then determines the ways you would choose to use those F-16s if they're given. So there's a correlation between ways, means, and risk relative to ends that should never stop. And that applies whether it's cross-cultural or whether it's inside of the same culture, you should always be thinking that way. And by the way, innovations, as I mentioned, is, is when you sense new ways to accomplish the same ends or new uses of means to accomplish the same ends. And, and that's what moves you into a different direction. We did that with Pacific Pathways in, in the Indo-Pacific Command Theater when I was commander U.S. Army Pacific, we did that with Spartan Shield, which is now a named and standing operation in the Middle East. Both of those were innovations. They were finding new ways to use the means available to us, the forces that were already committed under combatant command and the potential reinforcements from the, the continental United States base, the service retained capabilities, so that we could have continuous presence and yet not have the same size force that we had at the peak of the Iraq operations, uh, as an example. It, it was, we were never gonna have those means again, but we still had the need to maintain the ends of presence, influence, relationship building, deterrence. These were all ends. And it requires us to think differently about how we put the means together in new ways. Spartan Shield is a way. Pacific Pathways is a way. And even the, the the turn options and response options in Korea were ways to use the resources differently that uh, that we'd pre previously been given. Thank you for that, sir. Uh, this is uh, Sergeant Barham. I'm going to take the conversation in a little bit different direction. Um, the 26 August, uh, we have Women's Equality Day. I want to tie that into your time at West Point and uh, you, you being part of the 1980 graduating class. Your class was the first to have uh, women cadets in their class. Not only that, you were the first captain and, and the first ever first captain to have women as part of every class. Can you share your thoughts on that unique experience and how that maybe impacted you overall? Well, sir, Barham, thanks for the question. First, I'm amazing, amazingly proud of the women that graduated with me at West Point and all the women who have come since then. Uh, they were absolutely trailblazers. When you're in the middle of something that is less well appreciated, as time goes on, you get some distance, you can appreciate even better the sacrifice that, that others have been through, the challenges that, that they had to overcome. And while you were overcoming some yourself, clearly, but you may, be, may have been, as I was, more focused on my own acceptance, my own uh, success in the Corps of Cadets at West Point, and the academic experience, the military experience, the physical experiences there than I was about their challenges and obstacles that were being faced. I found myself changing my understanding over time. This is one of the early experiences of cultural awareness. 
because I was really not paying attention to that when I was a new cadet and had honestly swallowed hook, line, and sinker some of the traditionalist views at West Point that women shouldn't be there. There's no place for women in there. They can't go into combat arms anyway. Why are they here? West Point produces combat leaders. I, I, I took in all that. And I went back recently and saw some of my letters to home from the summer of 1976 and how way off I was. But I was very much in line with the zeitgeist at the time, and it was completely wrong. As time went on, I recognized by obviously firsthand observation and being in teams with women that while there were absolutely some differences, the differences I thought were there really were not. They were excellent. They were brilliant. They were courageous. They were strong. We may have been strong in different ways, but that's okay. There were some men in my class who were not as strong as others do, and some who were extremely strong. There is variance in every individual. It's what you do to bring them together that causes the positive and effective outcomes from the collective. And so I learned as each year went by how to do that more and more effectively and how to appreciate the differences as, as value added, not as detractors as the zeitgeist had been when I first walked in there. By this senior year, by my fourth year there, of course, we now had women in every class. And it was the first year that had happened in West Point's history. There were not women in every one of the 36 cadet companies yet. Some of them had been very slow to integrate or had been hostile and drove the women out. And so there was some consolidation and reorganization so that women could at least have a, a, a female roommate. And that meant that sometimes we ended up taking uh, women out of companies and consolidating them in a different company. So while we didn't have all 36 companies integrated at that point in time. And there was a downside to that because some of those co companies that were still all male took pride in that. And that was pride in holding on to what was past. And it was a negative pride, not a constructive pride. And then those who embraced it had a very different culture and mindset and could achieve excellence in a variety of things as, as certainly my company, I4 at West Point did. And we were an integrated company with men and women and we had them in multiple classes. I think with three of our classes had women at that point in time, one class did not. Anyway, I think about all those things and then the long journey that came thereafter and watching obstacles being put in front of women, presumptions that were being made about what women could or could not do rather than just getting out of the way. And I find from a policy-making perspective, as I had to do as a senior leader making military policy, that the less we try to impose controls, the more successful the integrative process will be. Men and women will find their own way and they'll do it with each other as teammates. If you put the, if you remove the, the false barriers, like you can't do this or you can only do that, or we're now gonna change your branch. And I know you West Point women, I think there are 15 or so that were commissioned in the field of artillery, for example. But it was initially they were allowed to go in cannon artillery as well as rocket artillery. Of course, we had nuclear missiles and all sorts of things in, in that, at that point in time in the army. And by the time they were late captains, their career opportunities had been foreclosed from what it is they had when they were lieutenants. Now they could only be in rocket artillery. And then those opportunities began to dwindle and suddenly they were all gone. Uh, the Army, in its effort to try to narrow or apply controls, had actually destroyed the presence of women in those branches altogether. And that happened in several branches. Of course, now we've removed combat exclusion, we've re removed branch exclusion, and women are, are certifying, and qualifying, certifying and qualifying in some of the most complex uh, training programs that we have out there. Not every woman can. Hey, not every man can either. And so this idea of women can't because some can't is a false control. We don't eliminate men from opportunities because some men can't. It's some men do and some women do if you get out of the way and then they make great teammates. That has opened the door to a variety of things. I, I think about special operations reconnaissance units. Uh, I look at this in other uh, branches of the US government as well. And it, it generates a different kind of woman leader 
and it's good for us. So I'm a big champion right now, and I'm, I'm certainly celebrating one of the qualities that comes up. I appreciate that, sir. Sure, that's great, and uh, and I really appreciate your candor, frankly. I think all of us look back at uh, decisions we made and perceptions we may have held when we were young and realize they may not have been the best informed. And uh, while we have come a long way with regards to what our female teammates are doing in the force, we know we've got a ways to go yet as well. That's something we're ever mindful of here at the Army North team as we look forward to Women's Equality Day. Mm-hmm. Sir, you, you said you were talking a few minutes ago, and we've been really talking around a couple of things to not just planning, but really strategy and culture. And one of my favorite quotes is Peter Drucker's quote, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So I'd ask you to dissect that a little bit. Do you agree? Do you want to push back? Where do you think primacy is uh, with regards to that? And, and what do you think of Peter Drucker's thoughts there? It's a very catchy expression. And I think largely it is true that when it's all said and done, the way an organization performs is going to be driven by its internal culture more than its strategy, which is imposed upon it. So I agree in principle with what it is that's being said there. I think, though, that it it may leave out, I'm not trying to expand Peter Drucker's comment, but rather as we think about his comment, it requires us to take another step, and that is what is the relationship between strategy and culture? Is the strategy of an organization reflective of its culture? Is the strategy for changing the culture founded properly on an understanding of the culture as it is and the culture that's desired? So you can create a strategy for culture change. And I've had to do that in many organizations. If there is some part of the the organization's culture that I didn't like, you can't just walk and say, okay, effective tomorrow, there will be no more. X, Y, or Z. Uh, You might say that, but that doesn't change the culture. You have to engage in actions that positively reinforce the desired behaviors and that negatively reinforce the undesired behaviors of a given culture until those behaviors are driven into extinction for the negatives or driven into presence and in common application for the positive. That can be a strategy also. So the end is a different, a different organizational culture that is without these negatives and that is amplifying these positives. That's an end description. What are the ways that you get there? What are the means that you use to cause the change? Is it how you apply awards? Commanders had the great opportunity of being able to say thank you to people. That's one of the greatest privileges I had as a commander. Oh, and yes, I sir. could never do enough of it. No matter how much I tried, it was never sufficient to the extraordinary things that were being done by my people. But commander's going to say, thank you. How do you do that? Is it written awards? Is it a handshake? Is it a coin? Is, is, it, is it calling somebody out when you're making a motivational speech before a unit run? And the answer, of course, is yes. It, it can be any one of those, all the, uh, all the above, and then some. But for what reason do you call them out? That's how you change the culture. You know, what is the behavior you're trying to exemplify to others? That this is a positive behavior and it is rewarded by my compliments, by my bonus payment, by my whatever the case may be incentive that commander or that leader has available to them. So there must be a strategy for changing culture when the culture is not sufficient. You mentioned a few minutes ago that at our North and Fifth Army, uh, there's strong effort being made to make sure we continue to move forward with how we develop the women leaders on our team and develop our team around women. Uh, Words to that effect. That means that there's still cultural change that is ongoing, and there should be a strategy for doing that. How do you possibly do that? How, How do you change the organization composition? How do you reorganize so that more people have women leaders in their organization, women to supervise, women to to follow? How do you do that? That's that's a strategy. And so I would say to Peter Drucker, yes, you're right. Culture eats strategy for lunch. But without strategy, your culture is stuck. And so you better have a strategy for moving the culture where you want it to be. Are you simply going to keep the status quo going forever? like those uh, who 
had those ideas about women shouldn't be at West Point. That that that's the those are the battles for status quo, as <laughs> excuse me, as opposed to the battles for progress. And it's the progress that I think that causes us to get better and better at who we are and what we do. So that's a great way to dissect that. You took that in a direction I didn't expect at all, but, but thanks so much for the answer. It's almost like the yin and yang of uh, strategy and culture that yeah, go hand in hand. <laughs> yes, as with most things. Honestly, I think that it's, it's sometimes easy when we study to parse things out into individual things. We have military instruments of power and we have diplomatic instruments of power. But I would tell you the complementarity between the two is what makes power, what makes national power. It's how military actions enable diplomacy. It's how diplomatic actions enable a military posture or provide basing access, overflight, use of spectrum, all these things that can be diplomatically achieved, but militarily useful. And it goes in both directions. It's the complementarity, the yin and yang, as you mentioned, that is the art art form, excuse me, that is the art form. Sir, thanks so much for your time today. This was a lot more than we thought we were going to be able to unpack, and and we're excited. So I look forward to the the final cut here and and how this works out. I'd ask one last question. We ask this of all our guests. Mark usually asks it, but I ask him if I could ask it because we like to share what we're reading. So I'm actually reading right now a book called Empire of the Summer Moon by uh, S.C. Gwynn. It's about the Comanche nation, frankly, their history, but particularly their history in the in the American West uh, and in Texas. I'm a recent Texan, Texas transplant, so uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. But And that's not necessarily something that's related to business or the military, so I always encourage our young listeners in particular to pick up a book from time to time that just is fascinating to you. But what are you reading right now? What has piqued your curiosity of late from your library there? love what you just described, John. So that's fantastic. And you're right. Reading outside of your work portfolio is a good thing. It just helps expand your thinking quite a bit. There might be a lot of things you learn from the Comanche Nation and how they were operating. If you read that book, that can apply to how our North works. You just never know. But some of the things I'm looking at right now, I, I tend to find of late, if I'm doing any recreational reading, it's actually record reading. So I'm a bit of a closet archaeologist, anthropologist, genealogist, all wrapped in one. Oh, wow. And I'm doing a lot of family history, digging and digging. So I'm reading lots of land documents and wills and wow. manumission <laughs> documents and things like that to penetrate the veil of slavery, which makes it difficult to trace my full family tree. And that's been fascinating by itself just to go through that. And I found a lot. So I'm reading a lot of those things. Being on the Department of Defense Advisory Committee on Diversity and Inclusion, I'm reading a lot of statistics right, on right. Uh, what the Department of Defense force looks like and what we might be able to do to make it even more diverse. And then there's some other things that I've got a couple of books sitting on my shelf that are ones that I have to get into and am interested in getting into is one that particularly caught my attention. I was working with the author doing some research when she was in a postdoctoral program. And she published a book that's called When Should State Secrets Stay Secret? And it's, a, it's, a, it's about accountability and governance and intelligence. And it, that's a fascinating one also. It's not unlike civil military relations. When you use that term of art that's thrown out there What's the appropriate relationship between civilian control and the military? Is it full full subservience? Is it a partnership? Does one side get to push back on the other? And if so, when? What about speaking out in public or not? There are lots of sharp thorns on the the rose bush that is easily observed in civil military relations. The same thing applies when it comes to state secrets. Should we know about every operation that John Evans did as a night stalker? Uh, I think everyone would be interested in that. There's no doubt about it. But (laughs) is there a consequence to that becoming public? And does that mean that there's a lack of transparency on the part of government because the secrets are still maintained? Or is is that an obligation you have to protect the, the society, the body politic, and the prerogatives that let our nation move as it does throughout the world? Absolutely. This is an interesting question. So I'm, I'm trying to get through that book right now, and I think that uh, she does a great job of treating it. Sir, thanks for sharing that, and I'm about to pick that up now because, like you said, that was a big part of my business for a while in the military. 
And we often struggled with that as people were retiring and wanting to talk about the things that they did and uh, balancing that with our national security. So, sir, let me, I'm going to let Mark wrap us up here, but I, I do just want to say. And by the way, that, the author is Dr. Genevieve Lester. I, I forgot to mention that. Genevieve Lester. Yeah, Sorry I, about that. Go ahead. No, no, Go sir. Ahead. No, sir. Thanks for that. I, I just want to say thanks, uh, you know, as our readers can probably, our listeners can probably appreciate uh you are an incredibly busy individual, and I and you did this gratis as well, just like you did for our Army Ball, which we greatly appreciated. To have access to you, we know that's a special thing, and we really appreciate you being able to share what you've been able to distill over your military career and then obviously in your post-military career. All the best to you and Carol and the family, and, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, John. It's, it's a great honor to be with you whenever I can have a chance to do that. Thanks for the opportunity to give back in some way. And- there's no sense in dying with knowledge. It should all have been given away before the time comes. I'm trying to do what I can while I have days still given to me. And I thank you for your leadership. I thank you for the team that is there. And this really great idea of having this podcast as well. To just have thoughtful conversation. God bless all of you and keep doing what you're doing, okay? Thanks a lot, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks sir. sir.